Thanks, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you all today. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and turn to John chapter 2. We're reading through, studying through the book of John this year. And uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we've got some in the back of the room. You can pick one up on the way out. Uh, It's a gift. You can can keep it. We'd love for you to have one. And uh, we'll also put the words up on the screen today so that you can follow along with us. My wife, Jenny, and I were out heading out to lunch uh, a while back, heading towards uh, Westfield. And I was just about a mile outside of Noblesville. Uh, when I heard this clicking coming from the right uh, front passenger tire. And so we pulled off to the side of the road. I got out to check it out. And what I found was that there was this hook um, just deep into my tire. It was kind of, it looked like it was a hook that maybe had been attached to a strap, kind of a tie down strap or something. And so, I mean, it was really lodged in there and I could just hear the air hissing from it as, as the tire was beginning to deflate. We've all been through something like that before, right? You've had a moment, maybe you've had this uh, come up on your dash before, this, uh, this symbol. And when it's illuminated, you know, okay, I got an issue. I got to deal with this. Uh, I, I got to take care of my my, my tire. Tire. And so uh, because I didn't feel like changing the tire, I quickly ran and jumped back in the truck and I turned around and I headed back into Noblesville with my sights set on getting to Firestone. And so wouldn't you know, we had a couple of stoplights. We got to this one stoplight. I told you, hey, jump out and check out the tire, see what it's doing. So she, she did. She got back in. She says, it's getting a little low, but I think we can make it. And sure enough, we made it. Just in the nick of time, we pulled into the Firestone parking lot, got a spot. I put the truck in park and all of a sudden, I'm not kidding, the tire was just... I mean, I, like I watched the front end of the truck just kind of sag as the tire went completely uh, deflated. Flat tires are a fun reality of owning a vehicle, right? And uh, you don't really stop to think about how dependent you are on something like air in your tires until it's almost gone. But it's not just air in our tires either. There are lots of things, true, small, essential, kind of important elements to our lives that we might take for granted unless they are not there, like water, for example. All right, we live in a, a place where water's readily available. But if you have you ever been out and been really, really thirsty uh, and running low on water, like you, you kind of know the feeling. What about time? Uh, we're busy people, every single one of us probably. We're always on the go, always short on time. Have you ever been cramming for a test, like all the way up until the class time and ever wished you had a little bit more time uh, so you could study a little bit more? What about this one? We, no one wants to run low on this. No one ever. You ever been stranded on a toilet seat before and there's none of this there? Some of you found this when you went to the grocery store this past week, right? Before Snowmageddon, like the shelves were empty of toilet paper. Look, there are some things in life that you never want to run out of. What happens when you start running low on things like joy, passion, desire, you just don't even care anymore. You're just, you just really are kind of running low on a will to live. Like what happens, maybe some of you uh, have gone through something like this, even in this now, like when you're going through a crisis on your own and you've been praying and praying and praying and nothing's changing. In fact, things are only getting worse and, and you start running low on faith. Have you ever been so paralyzed by things like fear and anxiety that you don't even know how you're going to get through the day because you can't even think for yourself. You can't get your mind thinking on positive things. You're just so focused on on something and it won't even allow you to move what happens when you lose the will to live. 
We're, we're going to study in the Gospel of John today. If you haven't turned there yet, John chapter 2. Uh, I want to look at a story with you today of Jesus and his disciples. And if you've been following along with us, if you've been studying on your own, you know these guys haven't spent a ton of time together yet. Uh, maybe even just days getting to know each other. And now they're at a wedding celebration. And at some point after they arrive, the news begins to spread that they are running out of wine. Now, I've been to some weddings where it would have been good for everyone if they ran out of wine earlier, right? Uh, But why is running out of wine here a big deal? Listen, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but you don't run out of wine at a first century Jewish wedding. And something else that we're going to see in this story that John is wanting us to get our minds around and really discover today is there's a lot more happening here than we realize. And so I want to invite you to pay close attention today as we study these words. And uh, no matter who you are, whether you're new to church, been around church for a long time, maybe you're new to faith, maybe you're still kind of exploring faith, you'd call yourself kind of a spiritual seeker, maybe you just feel like you got nothing left in the tank when it comes to faith right now. I believe that God wants to use this story of a wedding, and particularly no wine to reveal something important to us about who Jesus is. Uh, why he came to this world, and what he can do for you and me, especially if you're running low on life. You feel stuck, and you feel like you've got nothing left to give. Let me pray with you as we get started. Father, thanks for this time and for this place today, for a warm building, for clear roads, and for a church family and guests. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship and for your presence here with us. And we would just ask, Lord, that you would have your way today. Uh, This is your time. And uh, we are here for you. Open up our eyes and ears uh, to see and to hear what you have for us today. Uh, Have your way in our lives, Lord, and uh, we want to be impacted by you. And so we trust you. Thank you for your word. Uh, Guide and direct us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. John writes this. He says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So there's this wedding. Uh, John wants us to know who some of the special guests are. And so we know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. Uh, Jesus is at this wedding, as well as his disciples and many other guests. And so we've got a wedding, and John also notes that it's in a place called Cana. And here's our map of Israel with Jerusalem being there in the very center, and Bethlehem just to the south of Jerusalem. If you go to the top of the map to the north, uh, you see the Sea of Galilee as the body of water, and then just to the left or just to the west of it are two locations, Nazareth and Cana. Nazareth being where Jesus grew up, and just nine miles to the north, a place called Cana. Now, scholars don't know for sure where this Cana is located. This is their best guess. Again, it's just outside or just nine miles north of Nazareth in a community today known as Kirbet Cana, and it looks like this today. Uh, If you were to go there, you can find this location. Now, there's a village there where people live, but also many ruins, many rocks. And we look at this thinking, "Ah, it just looks like a bunch of boring rocks to me. Well, don't say that to an archaeologist, all right? They find a lot of things in a place like this. And and I think we can all agree that a wedding's a pretty big deal, all right? I mean, all weddings are a big deal. I don't think you've ever been to a wedding that wasn't a big deal. And how long does a wedding or reception last today? Well, today, 
if you're a regular wedding guest, you might be looking at a six, seven, eight-hour affair, maybe a little bit longer. If you're family, uh, you're probably more two to three days. Maybe there's some travel involved in, in being a part of a wedding. If you're the parents or the siblings to the bride and groom, well, that's next level. Like, you know, a wedding takes months to plan, and even when you get to the weeks leading up to the wedding, you're fully invested. It takes all of your time. Get this. In ancient Israel, wedding celebrations went on for days, sometimes up to a week. Some of you get bent out of shape when you got to give up a whole Saturday to go to somebody's stinking wedding, all right? Imagine using a week's vacation to attend a wedding like this, but you did, and you did it willingly because the wedding celebration was considered to be one of the most important events in life, especially among the poor. Everyone was invited, family, friends, the entire community, as well as friends and family from surrounding villages, maybe even nine miles away. And that's why these weddings were such big parties with lots of celebrating. And there was dancing, there was food, there was plenty of wine, or at least there was supposed to be plenty of wine. Look at verse 3. John writes, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I blame the groom, all right? Can't you hear the bride just saying, I've done everything to plan for this wedding. You had one job, all right? Order the wine for the wedding. They're out of it. It's certainly his fault. Why is Mary concerned? What's bothering her? Well, if it's family that means that Mary potentially has a role to play. And this is a big day. Like a wedding is when you wanted everything to go right. And so you can't overemphasize the distress in Mary's words when she comes to Jesus and says, there's no more wine. And why get Jesus involved? And what's the big deal? Well, a few reasons to consider. First, wine played such an important role at the wedding celebration that running out of wine could lead to a lawsuit against the newlyweds and their families, which sounds a little, you know, over the top, but it was evidence of poor planning. It was evidence of a lack of respect for your wedding guest. But that's not all. This is an honor and shame culture. And we can't understand that living in our Western world context, but in an honor and shame culture like this one, you'd go to great lengths to avoid bringing shame to yourself, to your family, and to your community. But there's one more thing about wine and wedding feasts that John knows and realizes. And Mary knows this, and the disciples were aware of it, And most importantly, Jesus knows it too. And that is that in the Jewish wedding feast, wine was essential. And not just so that people could drink themselves silly. No, in the Old Testament, wine was a symbol of God's blessing. It was a symbol of his joy. In fact, the rabbis had a saying that without wine, there is no joy. Which means you can also translate Mary's words as, they have no more joy joy. And so what does John want us to see in this particular dilemma? I'd say it like this, that life without Jesus is like a wedding celebration with no wine. Life without Jesus is like a wedding celebration with no wine. Kent Hughes explains this. He says, like these newlyweds, The universal experience of humanity apart from Christ is that there comes a time when the wine runs out, when the joy and exhilaration of life are gone. Would you agree? I mean, isn't it true that 
life's circumstances, ups and downs, have a way, if we're not careful, of consuming all of the joy. Like things can be so go, going so good, so, ingro- so great one day. You've got all the money you need. You've got the house you want and all the toys to go with it. You've got the marriage. You've got the kids. You've got the dream job. Maybe you got into your first choice university, but then life happens. Something goes wrong, doesn't go according to plan. Someone messes up. A pandemic comes along and changes everything. And don't get me wrong, like there's nothing wrong with the the homes and toys and relationship. There's nothing wrong with the things that we find joy in, so many at least of those things. But when we make anything other than Jesus Christ our ultimate source of joy, we're going to face disappointment. Like there's going to come a time where every single one of us are going to face a letdown. But the truth of this story And the message that I believe that the gospel writer John wants to make sure we take away today is this, that a life with Jesus, it changes everything. That a life with Jesus is no promise that you're not going to face pain or hardship, but a life with Jesus changes things. A life with Jesus, it just means no matter what you go through, no matter the ups and downs, like he's our source of joy. He's the only one that can truly satisfy all of our needs. And so Mary goes to Jesus. Again, this is Jesus' mom. And look at his response to her in verse 4. He replies, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Is there anyone else that's a little uncomfortable with Jesus' tone with his mom here? Like, I don't know about you, but growing up in my house, like if I talked to my mom that way, she wouldn't have waited for my dad to come home. Like she would have dealt with the situation in that very moment. But it's important that we realize that Jesus isn't being disrespectful of his mother here. And some of this gets lost in translation because his response to her is actually compassionate and respectful. In fact, he's using some of the same language he used to address his mom when he was hanging from the cross and she was there at his feet. But at the same time, it's important that we recognize that Jesus is drawing a very clear line in regards to his relationship with his mother and also his relationship with his heavenly father. Especially when you remember that Mary knows the truth. Like she knows the truth about Jesus. She remembers the angel. Uh, She remembers the message. She remembers his birth. She's been waiting for Jesus to go public with the truth about who he is. And you want to know something else? Jesus knows the truth about who he is too. He knows where he came from. He knows who he belongs to. And most importantly, Jesus knows what he came into this world to do. And you can see it in his words. Look at those words again in in verse 4, the second half. Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Emphasis there on the word hour. And Mary doesn't realize it yet, but Jesus is using crucifixion language here. Jesus knew that he was going to eventually give up his life on the cross in Jerusalem. And so in everything that Jesus did, he was always looking past the immediate circumstances and ahead towards the cross. Because Jesus knew that it's on the cross that he would accomplish something great for God. Jesus knew the cross for us means victory over things like pain and tears and and even shame. And not just the shame that results from running out of wine at a wedding. Jesus came to deal with shame on a deeper, permanent level. That's what Jesus could see. That's what he had in mind. Mary, on the other hand, 
She couldn't imagine a, a wedding without wine, but instead of pushing back or threatening Jesus with the mom look, all right, and some of you know what I'm talking about when I say the mom look, no, she responds in a way that demonstrates trust in Jesus. Look what she said to him, verse 5. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I'm not sure what happened here. We don't get a lot of details about whether there was more of an exchange. They talked about some other things. All we know is that Jesus decides to act. And keep this in mind, though, Jesus is not going to do anything that his Father in heaven has not commanded him or given him the permission to do. All we know is that John shifts attention to some water jars. Look at this. Check this out. Verse 6. John writes, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. John's given us some clues here about the overall meaning of this miracle when he notes these water jars. And they probably looked something like this. These are uh, in the Israel Museum uh, in Jerusalem today. And John says they're stone, which again is a clue because that tells us that these jars were likely used uh, for Jewish Jewish purification or or cleansing because according to Jewish laws, uh, clay jars couldn't be used. They they could easily become contaminated. Stone jars couldn't. And, And that's important because for the Jewish people, ceremonial washing or purification was extremely important. Listen, personal sin was a problem for everyone back in the first century as well. And so you had to wash or purify yourself regularly. And at least for a moment, you'd feel like you dealt with the problem of personal sin. But unfortunately, this type of ceremonial washing or cleansing only provided a temporary solution. There was no final solution, permanent solution to the problem of sin which really leads to a great question. If that's the dilemma they were dealing with then, what about us today? How are we supposed to deal with the problem of shame, personal shame, and sin in our lives? And if we're honest, I think we'd say that none of us like to be confronted with the reality that we have a sin problem. Right? We don't want to believe it. We don't want to acknowledge these things. But, but the word of God for us says otherwise. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God's standard for our lives. And that may or may not mean much to you, depending on how long you've been around church or your understanding of faith or even how you respond to God's word and Jesus. But, but the truth is, I think no matter who you are, like we all try and deal with, with at least personal sin or whatever you call it, shame, mess-ups. We all try and deal with it, our imperfections in different ways. Like we'll, we'll, we'll do things like we'll, we'll cover it up or we'll, we'll attempt to hide it. We'll, we'll pretend like it doesn't matter. It's no one else's issue. It's me. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. Or we'll ignore our own issues altogether. We'll do this instead. We'll go looking for faults in others. And so if, if I can point out your faults, then maybe somehow I feel better about myself. We'll, we'll try and pretend like nothing ever happened, or at least we hope that no one finds out. And if we're not careful, I mean, again, the more and more that we go on attempting to cover up these things, well, we'll turn to other things to help us deal with the effects of sin in our life. I mean, think about how quickly and easily we can turn to an unhealthy relationship. 
or get absorbed into a, a dangerous habit. I mean, anything really that might drag us away from God, drag us away from others. And then, when, then what happens is, like, whether we realize it or not, is we kind of start wasting away on the inside. We're, we're drowning in our shame. We, we drown in our own pain. Now, now, some of us, let's just take it one step farther, we might be willing to admit our own personal sin. And while we know the message of, that, that God forgives the real challenge becomes like, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. And so we get stuck. We get stuck in this cycle of, of shame and guilt. We get stuck in this cycle of shame and guilt. And, and if not dealt with appropriately, the joy, well, really the will to live runs dry. Here's the good news. The good news, and, and that John wants us to know and realize, is that Jesus came into this world to deal with things like sin and shame and pain and frustration once and for all. And the good news is that when we trust him in faith, when we begin to understand what it is that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf and receive his forgiveness, and not just a temporary forgiveness, but a permanent forgiveness, the good news of Jesus is that when we trust him and put our faith in him, we are completely forgiven. And his death and resurrection mean that we have been given new life, that new life is available to us. We got to see a glimpse of this last week as we celebrated baptism here uh, at Genesis Church at our Noblesville campus and at our Carmel campus as well. There were four people from our church family that were baptized last week, and baptism is a symbol of new life, new life in Jesus Christ. And the idea of leaving our old lives behind and beginning a new life with Jesus is at the heart of this wedding story in Cana. Look at what happens next. Again, verse 6. John says, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. We got six jars, right? Six jars holding, John says, between 20 to 30 gallons of water each. And how high did they fill them? They filled them to the brim. I did a little research, Google, uh, and learned that 30 gallons of water weighs around 240 to 250 pounds per container. And that's just the liquid, all right? That's just the water. Multiply that by six containers, and well, you've got around 1,500 pounds of water and no faucet. All right, there's no garden hose to fill these things. And so they probably had to go to a nearby cistern and whether they carried the stone jars or they were retrieving the water with something else, you can imagine how carrying this water was a really big workout. Some of you pay really big money to do this at CrossFit, all right, to carry these things around from one place to another. They're doing it here as well. And we don't know how long it took. All we know is that as soon as the jars were filled, Jesus gave the next order, verse 8. It says, he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Can you imagine if you're the guy that's carrying the ladle to the master of the banquet? And just take note of this. We don't know if this for sure, but I read this this past week. John doesn't tell us whether they're carrying water or they're carrying wine. We're not for sure when the miracle actually took place all we know is the wine was out. This carpenter turned rabbi is telling you to fill these stone jars with water, and now you've got a guy running some up to the wedding DJ, all right? And verse 9, John writes, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the so servants had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you saved the best till 
now. Here's a quick little bonus message for today. This really isn't even the, the purpose of this, but I couldn't leave it out. You want to see God do some amazing things in and around your life? Get close to Jesus. Get close to Jesus. And not only that, but make serving Jesus and a life of obedience your priority, even when it doesn't make sense. And I promise you'll see God do some amazing things in and around you. But back to the wedding, something interesting about this miracle. There's no abracadabra, uh, no big spectacle, no big announcement. For all we know, this miracle is only witnessed by a small crowd. Jesus' mom, the servants, oh yeah, the disciples. Don't forget them. They're important players in this story. Remember, they've just started spending time with Jesus What in the world is this miracle going to do for them and their new faith? Which makes what John says at the end of this event even more important because in verse 11, he wraps up the scene saying, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Notice that John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. And what's a sign do? Well, you've seen signs like these before, whether you're cruising around I-465 or whatever. Like a sign tells you what's coming. A sign is pointing you in a particular direction. What's significant about this miracle or this sign? Well, it's significant for at least a couple of reasons. For starters, remember that John's gospel, we talked about this week one in January. John's gospel is divided really into two basic parts. The first 12 chapters are often referred to as the book of signs as they contain seven Seven important signs that are meant to point us to who Jesus is and why he came. The second half, the last nine chapters of John, are often referred to as the book of glory as we begin to see Jesus' glory as Messiah being revealed. What does John say in verse 11 again? He tells us that the sign is pointing to the glory. And that's important because while the miracle of water to wine certainly is fascinating and a big part of this wedding celebration, we also know that John is up to something greater in this story. And remember, keep this in mind, John is not just reporting facts. Unlike some of the other gospel writers, he is always up to something. He is always sharing a message that is bigger than our eyes can often see. And in this instance, John makes it very clear, crystal clear, that this is the first of many signs that were intended to reveal Jesus' glory as the promised Messiah. And as a result, the disciples believed in him. They're growing in their faith in him. And the lack of wine in this story is a detail that, that points to something more important. As I mentioned just a moment ago, like no wine in this story, when you think about it, really is representative of a life without Jesus. And just like these wedding guests, as Hugh says, you know, the universal experience of humanity is that apart from Christ, if we're not careful, there will come a time in your life where the wine, the joy runs out and we lose all joy, we lose all hope. Really, without Jesus, you can lose the will to live. And here's what the world will do. And every single one of us is up against this each and every day. The world will try to fill that void for us. 
Uh, fill that void with things that we can seize, that we can take control of for ourselves. Like every day we are bombarded with, with false messages and gimmicks and wannabes and counterfeits, things that promise life and fulfillment and sac- satisfaction, things like love and, and sex and money and relationships and bigger homes and toys and, and one more opportunity, but rewards really that are temporary at best. And again, that doesn't mean that all of these things are wrong and that there's anything you know, wrong with enjoying, again, what most at least of what life has to offer. But when we make the pursuit of these things the ultimate thing in our life, well, that's when the joy begins to run dry. And one of the major themes of this story that emerges is that Jesus' arrival at this wedding swings open the door to a new promise for us all. The Apostle Paul outlines it in his letter to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Think back through what we just studied. What did Jesus use to gather the water? He chose stone jars previously used for ceremonial washing, but we know now that Jesus has come to die in our place. Ceremonial washing is a thing of the past because the old is gone and the new is here in Jesus. And when the wine ran out at the wedding, Jesus didn't just send someone to the store to get more. No, he miraculously changed 180 gallons of water into choice wine, meaning the very best wine, because the old is gone and the new is here. One of the reasons I love this story is that Jesus spared this newlywed couple and their family from shame, and they didn't even know it. They didn't even realize it. And Jesus has come to do the same for us to save us, to save us from the pain, the sin, the brokenness, the regrets, the shame of our lives, to offer us a life of of hope and joy and celebration. And that's what these disciples were beginning to realize too. And that's why John says in verse 11, and the disciples believed in him. And part of that came from what they had just witnessed. But it also came potentially from their understanding of prophecies from the past that they were anxiously awaiting to be revealed. Prophecies found in places like Isaiah chapter 25, which dates back 700 years prior to this event in Cana. And the prophet Isaiah, his words here describe the Messiah who would come, his arrival, and interestingly, it would be like a great wedding Celebration. Check it out for yourselves. Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. Isaiah says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the Lord has spoken. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes for just a moment. You've just witnessed this miraculous sign, and then maybe you recall these words from Isaiah. What in the world did it do for their faith? John says the disciples believed in him because the old is gone and the new is here. And one last thing, the same John who recorded these events here at Cana 
is the same John who received and also wrote down the words we know as Revelation, the final book of the Bible, which describes the events surrounding Jesus' return to the earth once and for all. And that's a day that if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's a day, that's a moment that we all look forward to. If you've put your faith in him, to know and believe that Jesus is going to return one day. And his return means that Satan and sin will be destroyed once and for all. That we will be reunited with those who have died, who trusted Christ and have gone on before us. And most importantly, we will be with Jesus forever in a place that we often refer to as heaven. John describes that moment in Revelation 21 verse 4. Do these words sound familiar? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And in that day, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And a couple of chapters before that, in Revelation 19, St. John describes the second coming of Jesus like this. It's a wedding celebration, a big event to celebrate our Savior's return, and he will never leave us, and he will gather his people. Here's the great thing about the wedding celebration at the very end of all things. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you got a seat at the table, and we will be with him, and there'll be no more pain, no more mourning, no more tears, and we will live with one another, and we will live with Jesus forever. And what a day that will be. But can I tell you something else? If you've never put your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus Christ, there's a seat at the table for you. And God is waiting, patiently waiting. He won't wait forever. But he is providing a moment and opportunity for everyone to respond to him. And maybe that's what you need to do today to respond to him, to trust him, and to know what it means to live with Jesus and to trust him through everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love that was demonstrated when you gave your son Jesus Christ to be our Savior, who gave his life, sacrificed his life, so that we could have life and hope and joy Thank you for being a God that can take care of all of the shame, the regrets, the sin of our lives, Lord. That you wash our sins as white as snow. And not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished. Thank you. Thanks for the promise of knowing that eternal life is something to be experienced now, like Jesus wants to be a part of every single one of our lives, and, and we thank you. We thank you that you've made a way through your Holy Spirit to know Jesus, to trust Jesus, to hang on to Jesus, to find everything that we need in him. And I thank you here, Lord. I thank you for that life and that hope, and, and that we can trust you not only for today, but we can trust you for the future as well. But I want to pray. I pray for those that are here this morning that have never trusted Christ as Savior. Today can be your day. There's a seat at the table for you. Put your faith in him. Trust him. You know, wherever you're seated right now, just pray, Lord Jesus, I, I want you to be a part of my life. 
I trust you. My faith is in you. He is everything we need. Father, we thank you. We celebrate you. Thanks for the life and hope we have through your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us?